This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Good evening, listeners, and salut, Babette. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. How are you, Andy? I'm well, thank you, Viv. How are you? Good, thank you. I'm really pleased to see you. And how is Sarah? Hello, Sarah. Very well. Very glad to be here. Thank you. <laughs> this is to just check that we're all on the microphones today. Uh, last week we talked about political and industrial scale solutions to climate change. Tonight we'll look at how effective personal change is if it mu- it's multiplied by millions. The show is called Pro Bono. Many people think it means giving your professional time free of charge, but really it means for the public good. Our first guest is a philanthropist. Sarah Brennan is with us, and she's from the Hamer Family Fund. Um, she's with us in the studio. And then we'll phone uh, Philippa Rowland in Adelaide. She'll tell us about collectively lowering our carbon footprint in a new campaign called Living the Change. It's a project of the Australian Religious Response to Climate Change. And then to finish, we'll talk to Kurt Johnson, who's down at Morwell. He's researching a story which he'll bring to you at the end of the month. And we'll talk about a new film um, about the Morwell mine fire called Our Power. It's a lot of pro bono work going into films and radio production and all of that, and there's a ton of pro bono work done at Morwell. So now we'll we'll, we'll talk to Sarah. Um, Oh, Sarah, I've um, <clears throat> lost my questions for you. Here they are. <laughs> I just told Sarah not to not to be frightened to talk uh, freely on the air, but I actually need to have my questions written, otherwise I would lose my track altogether. Uh, uh, Sarah is the daughter of Sir Rupert Hamer, who was Premier of the state and widely respected as a progressive liberal. Uh, you might know Hamer Hall listeners as you go down St Kilda Road. In commemoration of Sir Rupert Hamer and his three siblings, the next generation is opening doors and empowering action in the arts and the environment. And as part of the Hamer Family Fund, she's come to admire Beyond Zero Emissions and has been helpful with our projects. They also have a fund to mentor young people around environmental issues, and that is called the um, Hamer Sprouts. It's not quite that. It's not quite mentoring. It's a it's a it's a branch of the family or branches of the family. The thirty somethings, um, they've got their own unit, so to speak. They've got they spend their money separately from yeah. us. They make their own decisions, and they're going great guns. Oh, that's yeah, so. We feel very confident about passing the baton, so yeah. to speak. Um, and, and the direction they take is quite similar to us oldies. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're only the environment. They don't fund the arts. They fund only the environment. So uh, is there anything that, for example, your father would like about what they're doing? Is it following? Oh, he'd love the- it. He would love it. He'd mm. be so delighted. Um, he, he was a great enthusiast for all kinds of things. But, you know, sh- young people showing get up and go, that would have really delighted him. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, we've just had uh, President Macron over here and he's been begging us to get on the front foot with our emissions. I'm sure he'd like to have us all en marche. Mm. And we had a Bangladeshi climate scientist on the radio very seriously. I took him very seriously and he said climate change is not a victimless crime because they were in the midst of enormous floods at the time and he said we are the climate criminals. 
Yet we seem to have no policy to stop mining more coal and gas for export and we have weak policies to lower our emissions. This is in my opinion. But you've just come back from Norway and France. So coming back to Australia, what can you tell us? Well, um, I've got no expertise. I only, only know what I saw and read in the newspapers in France. Um, I have no Norwegian, so I couldn't even read the newspapers there. But uh, the picture there is very different from here because both states, both in both cases, the governments are really aware of what needs to happen and they both have strong policies. Um, so Par- uh, France obviously hosted the, the Paris um, summit uh, and most Listen, of your listeners will probably recall Macron's quote about wanting to make the planet great again, mm-hmm. uh, which is a bit of a slap down for President Trump. Um, so Macron is really serious about this, I think. And you can see that in policies, for example, that are announced uh, about, uh, for example, diesel vehicles or uh, electric vehicles in Paris. They have very um, advanced ideas about that. Uh, Renault and the Paris Mayor just signed an agreement about that. Um, Which is what, to get rid of the diesel-powered cars? Yeah, they've got a target by 2025. Mm. Um, And the Renault agreement is to put in place shared electric vehicles, you know, fairly quickly over the next few years. Mm. Um, Of course, France has nuclear power, it relies heavily, and not so much solar that we saw. Mm. Quite quite a lot of wind, but not Mm. so much solar. Um, Norway is a bit different, it's a bit more like Australia in one sense they've got good targets um, uh, they also are forging ahead with electric vehicles you see lots of Teslas all over the place and charging stations but of course they're also reliant for their wealth on oil exports mm. which they don't count in their figures mm. so in that sense they're like us, mm. we don't count our coal exports in mm. our figures I'm yeah. going to talk at the end about a film listeners might remember called accrued injustice and apparently um, oh no it's another film about the great Australian bite and apparently that Norwegian state oil which has got another name now that yes. they wanted to drill for oil in the great Australian bite so oh, yes. you know yeah they are like us in that way but when you talk to Norwegians and French people did they feel positive about climate action was it a, a okay subject to talk about or were they cringing like us I didn't talk to them very much about that we talked to them about Macron but most of our conversations were with you know, mm. about more local things. Mm. Um, so I can't, I can't give you a reading on that, really. Mm. Mm. I, I sort of but think... I, sorry, just yeah. one thing. Mm. I do think it's much more in the hands of the state government. As I said before, I think philanthropy and private individuals play a lesser role, which in a sense is okay because the states are taking it seriously, mm. but... Um, it's just a different balance yeah. of forces. Yeah. Mm. Well, I know something you and I have in common is a book by George Monbiot. When you wrote to me that you'd be happy to speak on air, mm. you mentioned Heat, and that's a book that got me started. When I read that book, it just went through every sector of society showing how it could decarbonise, and it came up, uh, you know, just with cement and I think aviation as the real obstacles. It did. Um, mm. How did it influence you? In shipping. Yes, shipping was also pretty hard. Mm. How did it influence me? It just clarified everything for me. Um, I think it uh, just clarified the way I I could think because when I first started to think about climate, I was so confused, and I'm sure a lot of people are in this situation. Where do I start? What is the important thing to do? How do you set priorities? And he's such a clear thinker, George Monbiot, such a clear thinker and writer, and that book was very helpful in that respect. And so that was one of the reasons why when I heard about the BZE campaign on, or 
research report on cement production, I just thought, that just fits in yeah. immediately. I knew that was really important. Yes. Well, one, um, the area that he said we couldn't decarbonise was cement, but now BZD has published a book, and we've had several programs about this, Rethinking Cement, which is the funniest title, mm. um, since you weren't thinking about cement at all, but now you're rethinking it. Mm. And I wonder what especially attracted you about BZD, the whole enterprise of BZD, you know, the research base. A lot of that is pro bono, people giving their yes. time. Um, Okay, well, there are many things, like a a whole range of things. One was the boldness and the simplicity of the target, of the the goals, you know, to to work out how Australia could decarbonise in 10 years using known technology. Amazing, you know, but nobody else has (laughs) had that sort of boldness. Um, And it's comprehensive, you know, they're looking at every sector of the economy. And the only other group that I know that's, done that as well as Climate Works. I'm not familiar with the mm. report, but they have done reports along those lines. Um, I also love the fact that they're using volunteer labour and that they use it so so well and that they're so economical. I mean, they run on the smell of an oily rag, as far as I can see, operating out of a little kitchen. Mm. <laughs> um, I think they've moved offices now, but they when, have, I, when I visited them once, it was this tiny little... <coughs> room with a with a laminex table <laughs> yes. well it used to be more people but now you know the, we've constrained it but all the rest is done by pro bono mm, <laughs> like, mm. and there's quite an art in using volunteer mm. um, well, we've got a lot of friends yeah. i think you know yes in, yes. in the university and, and if i can just say two, two other things i also admire particularly the staff that you've got now vanessa i think is very um sensible and strategic in her outlook and she seems to be very effective with the limited resources she has and Michael Lord, the chief researcher, is a beautiful writer. Mm. He thinks very clearly, he mm. speaks very well quietly but with great conviction and he writes very well. And some of the earlier reports that BZE did were a bit impenetrable, I think. That was my impression. And um, But his report on cement is very readable. <laughs> That's right. Listen, what sort of projects does your fund encourage in terms of climate action? When you get together and discuss where you're going to invest your money, um, mm. give your money. Um, well, what, what are you looking for? What are we looking for? Um, well, in the first place, we're looking because we're small and we don't have a lot of money to splash around. We're looking for catalytic kinds of projects, so ones that we think will have a, you know, smallish projects that might have a big effect and spread out. Um, so, can I give you a couple of examples? Yes. Have you got time? Yes, we have. Um, so, BZD is one. Uh, there are various reports. Um, but also uh, the Centre for Policy Development, which is a small think tank, but they do unexpected things. So, for example, they approached climate change through security. They commissioned a report on the security implications of um, climate change and they brought out a British admiral to launch it mm. and they mounted a seminar in Canberra with Defence Department officials and so forth. So they were getting at the decision makers mm. and they seem to be very effective in that way, getting their reports to the people who yeah. matter. And that's because you can do a good report yeah. and it can just sit there. Yeah. And what's the use of that, you know? So, um, and the other thing that the Centre for Policy Development did was to commission a legal opinion on the responsibilities of directors on carbon risk. Mm. And that got immediate coverage in the in financial circles and the Reverberations are spreading out still, um, and there'd been work done on directors' responsibilities, but it hadn't had mm. the publicity that mm. that got. So they seem to be very effective in that way. Yes, and that was also getting at a sort of slightly the financial world. 
um, and the security world, they're kind of two angles that have been a bit neglected or yeah. hadn't. Do you feel that philanthropists can be more independent because the, the, you know government governments are quite cumbersome and even business is very cumbersome and mm. slow moving. They have to think very far ahead. But you can be bolder if you're, a, you know, a philanthropist. You can think this is where I really want to see some movement and invest there and see if it works. If it doesn't, there might be... Look, I think governments could be bold. They just have to put their mind to it. And Mm. business can be bold. Business can turn things around very quickly when Mm. they decide to and they have the resources. Um, The thing that philanthropists have is the freedom from uh, electoral pressures Mm. and, shall we say, lobbying pressures and the need that parties seem to feel to, to rely on donors, um, which kind of twists their priorities. Yes. So we can be free in that sense. Yes. That's what. That's mm. why I think when I was doing this philanthropy, I didn't really know much about the role of philanthropy. Then I thought there must be quite a freedom in that, intellectual freedom. That mm. You can, you know, have various influences in your group and, and then you just go with something and embrace you it. You can let and your ideals have mm, free play. Mm, mm. That's right. Yeah. Well, um I've been reading a book by Amitav Ghosh um, called The Great Derangement and it was the result of four lectures sponsored by the Berlin Family Lecture Series. And I looked at that, I thought, oh, he, he, he wouldn't have written that. He's a novelist. He wouldn't have been writing this um, just off the, his own bat. But they maybe gave him the impetus to, to give these lectures and they're very interesting. Um, in Australia, we have a really peculiar disinterest around climate action. You know, mm. back in 20, 2007, it seemed like it was all going to happen, but now we've gone back into We have so many voices in journalism and around the place that are just naysayers and um, paralysing people's action, and people don't seem to believe in action. There's even outright denialism in Parliament, you know, with the lumps of coal being handed around. And I... I don't think you'll find much about climate change at cultural events either, like the the film festival. I go to the film festival and and writers' festivals, and there's not much about climate fiction. Well, maybe I just don't see it, but I don't know that it's it's not necessarily about climate fiction. But there's certainly, I think they always have a session or two. Yes. Um, uh, I don't go to the the film festival, Mm. but I went to the French film festival um, last year, and there was a very interesting movie about citizen groups and so forth. Yes. What they were doing yeah. for the environment and for climate. And um, it got a very good reception. Mm. Yeah. So it does happen. No, but I, th- I agree with you. It's the kind of some of the public spaces that are really important, like the newspapers. You know, we've got Murdoch, yeah. who's such a such a blockage oh, totally. <laughs> um, to all well many of mm. our media channels. So that's just a real handicap for us, a and huge handicap. And the other thing that happens is you do get coverage of climate events, but it's more in the form of uh, this is a record that's just been passed for heat or floods or mm. whatever. Um, it's more about natural disasters and so forth. And it's very rarely looking at so it's a kind of fringe thing. It's one, and, and, and environment, the environment mm. is treated as one aspect of policy, not something that underlies every aspect of policy, which is where it, really where it should sit in my yes. view. That's right. Well, Friends of the Earth did a campaign recently, and they're, they're quite effective under the radar, you know, and they, mm. they, I think they 
more or less out of market forces. Yes, that's is, right. You know, that, so the divestment move. Mm. And but they went door knocking around Victoria and just asked, starting with the question of how is climate change affecting you? And people mm. were able to just say very simple things and then building on that a kind of an awareness and and most people do understand it's happening, but it's not reflected in our cultural voices, and that's why I, I worry. And you've been in publishing. I wondered. Um, you know, if you just had a open checkbook to to promote certain type of writing, would you? Is there anything you'd like, or any writer you'd like to push forward, or who do you think could be the voice, like Amitav Gosh, who could speak to us, to the Australian audience? Well, Tim Winton's coming forth mm. as a voice. Mm. Um, you know, he's been, he's more willing now to be a sort of propagandist, I suppose mm. you might say, for causes. He's recently written something, and he's he's. Um, Explicitly backing action on sexual violence, yes. I think is is really his line. But he's also written stuff about the environment, as we know. Yeah. He's very, yeah. very dedicated to the environment. So he would be an obvious one. Um, I think we need heroes, definitely, and we've got people like Tim Flannery already. Uh, we need more people like Naomi Klein, um, the author of This Changes Everything. Uh, who else have we got? can't think but we have got yeah. a few but the thing is if you want to in, so to go back to a question mm. about publishing i'm not sure how effective a book is <laughs> it's, mm. it's very sad for me to say this but um unless the book has an author behind it who's got already got a very strong reputation and will be besieged by journalists for mm. interviews and so forth you can have a quiet little book that says everything i published a book called guarding eden about climate activists yes, as this kind of personal oh, way of getting into the climate Did you publish thing. that? We interviewed all of them. That was one of our oh, best okay. shows. Yeah, they yeah, were yeah. fantastic yeah, people. Yeah. Terrific book. Yeah. Um, and I'm hoping that schools are buying it and yeah, using it. Yeah, me but, too. Um, and the author's very, very lucid and very funny. But uh, the sales haven't been huge. Oh. You know, so I, I'm just not sure... It's, it's more online things that can yeah. be effective, yeah. I think. Oh, well, maybe we can have another discussion later, <laughs> just specifically on that. Mm. But look, we started out with the idea of the common good, and look, we are an altruistic species. I have to keep reminding myself, and Mombio's just written another book about this called, I think, Out of the Wreckage. Mm. But if we fill our mind with dystopias and disempowering ideas, I went to visit someone who had Netflix the other day and that's what they were watching, hours and hours of this awful dystopian stuff and I don't think we'll go, we'll we'll not only go down not fighting but we'll go down very depressed Mm. so I'm not even into any of that and I just would like to see um, something hopeful and the next speaker is going to talk about research they've got where 10, 10% of the carbon emitters, the top 10% of perhaps consumers would cut back to the carbon footprint of an average European, which is eight tonnes per person, versus Australia, which I think is 23. Um, we would cut world emissions by 33%. So mm. when I thought of that, I thought, that's very hopeful. That doesn't sound too hard. Just cutting back to what an average European has, you'd, you'd be cutting world percent um, world emissions by a third so what hope do you see in sort of like individual action personal action shifting the well norm? i just challenge you a little bit because i yep. don't think that lower percentage for europeans is only because of personal action mm. it's also because they have very very good public transport for example mm. which replaces the need for cars for many of them a lot of parisians wouldn't have a car yeah because the metro you know mm. you only have to wait three or four minutes mm. <laughs> and yeah. you get your next train um we just don't have that so it's actually much harder 
for us to... Um, but, on the other hand, I do think that um, uh, if, you, if you do take some action, that immediately makes you feel more hopeful. It's, it's, it generates hope to take action. And you can find things online. Some of them are a bit um, weak. Mm. <laughs> uh, but you can find things online that will tell you. And also there's a crowd called Climate for Change yeah, good. Yep. who do climate conversations, or, you know, dinner table conversations, which are designed to incite people to do something, mm. concern people who've not been knowing what to do. And they put out a fortnightly email, which you can read in two minutes, which gives you a bit of news but also suggests things you can do. Um, so personal action is really important because it accumulates, but it's also really important that business and government yes. are oh, acting. I agree. And we've, we we've can't do it we've just by consumer action. It's got to be citizen action pushing that's government right. and business. That's right. But Ask then it becomes the norm. Mm. It becomes the norm, like not mm. smoking has become mm. the norm. And... Um, Yep, we'll see the change. I, I, I agree with the Climate for Change in their newsletter. And listeners, if you want to look up Climate for Change, their newsletter is terrific and you can join them if you're in Melbourne. So thank you very much, Sarah. We've been talking to Sarah Brennan. Um, she's come here to talk to us about the pro bono work of the Hamer Family Fund. Thanks very much.
are back at the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show, and that was Eco Pella with a lovely song called Newell Highway. So thank you to Eco Pella. Our next interview is with Philippa Rowland. Um, we're continuing with the pro bono theme of tonight's show. It's about for the common good. And we're going to talk with her in Adelaide. She's a Buddhist and she's part of the Australian Religious Response to Climate Change, which is a multi-faith faith group of Australian um, people who uh, are taking action. So welcome, Philippa. Are you there? Yes, I am. Hello, Vivian. Thank you. And happy birthday. I happen to know it's your birthday today, so I hope it's been a good day. Halfway to 11 <laughs> Now, before some uh, listeners turn off thinking, oh, religion, that's not my thing, tell us why now is an ideal time to get people in all sorts of religious groups to act collectively in a new campaign called Living the Change. Well, I think a lot of people who probably listen to your program would be well aware that we're approaching tipping points in a number of directions. And one of those is that by September this year, the next report from the International Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, will be out. And unfortunately, that's going to reveal that reality is tracking faster than predicted. And the other piece that's coming into frame is that out of the commitments made under the Paris Agreement, unfortunately, there have been some time lags in delivery by countries and our own country Australia is probably in the poorer part of that kind of uh, doing our heavy lifting in that regard as we should be under the Paris Agreement. So that means that the world is probably towards the end of this year facing a bit of a, a depressing moment in just recognising the seriousness of the situation we've all got ourselves into. And what the Living the Change initiative puts into that space is a very hopeful, grassroots, community-led push to take some deliberate actions in our own lives to make a tangible contribution to the climate change scenario through encouraging uh, people of all faiths and none to look at what we can do to take action in three key pillars of deliberate choices around the food we eat, the energy we consume, and the transport choices that we make. And I guess the, the role here for uh, faith groups is based on the last number of years' work at the global level, where the faith community has been quite surprising in its collective will to speak out. So there have been some quite major interfaith statements. One was delivered to the United Nations in New York, in April 2016, and that was a major statement calling on governments to swiftly sign, ratify, and implement the Paris Agreement, which, as many of your listeners would know, was a UN agreement that came into force most swiftly, surprisingly swiftly. And I think going into Marrakesh, which was the next conference of the parties on the climate discussions, there was similarly a strongly worded interfaith statement signed by <coughs> over 36 Australian faith leaders mm. which called for the rapid divestment from fossil fuels and the transition to renewable energy. So I guess the difference between that, those campaigns and this one is that the previous campaigns that have been faith-led 
has been getting people to sign a document calling on other people to do things. And this one is very much calling on ourselves to be part of the solution. That's wonderfully clear, Philippa. Thank you. And just before we go to the next question, I noticed in today's news that the Anglican Church in England is really starting to heap the pressure on the um, people that they invest their funds in, you know, yep. like BP and um, big oil and coal companies, and asking them to trend out of that so you know that's one thing and also the pope recently had a big meeting private meeting with the oil industry and um i'm very hopeful that 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 will produce some sort of um flourishing or change of direction so but my next question is really back to this thing about personal things and what we can do and i was reading the uh, writer Amitav Ghosh and he welcomed the Pope's contribution called Laudato Si and he said look already we can't just do it with these new groups just springing up from who care about climate change we'll have to go to the existing organised groups and um, communities and mass organisations who um, they need to be at the forefront and, th- and those ones with religious affiliations can really mobilise people in far greater numbers than others and he said also something interesting about religious groups that they transcend nation states and they also acknowledge something about the intergenerational nature of climate change, long-term responsibilities. And I think religions also talk about much bigger forces, you know, thousands of years ahead and in the past. I'd like yeah, you to sure. tell us what's... Like do traditional peoples, like, you know, through, right. into Aboriginal Australia or into First Peoples around the world, they have that sense that we are... I mean, basically, we're humans alive today, mm-hmm. and that uh, gives us great opportunities, but also great responsibilities. That's right, and I think a lot of the what what richness can we get from faith traditions? Would you say their teachings about treading lightly on the earth? Well, I think Vivian, the answer to that question is individual. It's not. I can't give an answer that would meet each person's need or desire or or what have you. And I think at the outset you introduced me as a Buddhist and indeed I am. I'm a scientist, an agricultural scientist who worked for over a decade in federal government giving scientific advice to policy makers. And it's really only the last uh, few years that sort of made me come out of being a closet Buddhist as you like and uh, to live a life in which my science and my faith are entwined in trying to be a decent human, putting my best foot forward for the common good. And in that, one role I've taken on in the last three, four years is involvement with the Multi-Faith Association of South Australia. For me personally, and I think I in a way can only answer it first personally and then sort of generically, is that I became very interested just before my mother died in 2013 with how did people make decisions? How do people make, you know, decide what to do in their own lives? And it's a bit crude, but I ended up coming to the conclusion that some people have a faith, so they've got a religion or a spiritual tradition that they follow, which gives them guidance. Other people have a conscience, that small voice of conscience on your shoulder that helps you decide what's right and wrong. And maybe the third category is people who follow power and money. And I think if you look at that within the broad spread of the world's religions, all of the faiths that I've looked at say that humans were given great gifts, but with those great gifts came great responsibility, 
And that responsibility was to care for each other and for the gift we have in Mother Earth of being our common home. And that seems to be the responsibility we've been reneging on. And we need to get the confidence and the courage to stand up for Mother Earth because we as humans have got the ability to respond. So that's where, for me, the, the, the sort of connection piece between the science and the faith comes from that courage to face reality and to say, well, in the face of this threat to our common home, I will do what I can and become part of a community solution to climate change. Hmm. Well, it does take courage, and I think living the change, actually, if you think it right through, we interviewed Mark Delaney from who wrote that book, um, Low Carbon Living and Loving It. There's a lot of courage, really, in, in leaping into a... A simpler life. But let's talk about the three things that this campaign is asking people to do. Listeners can make pledges on the Living the Change website in August and they can think about it before then. And you might, for example, switch to green power and that is equal to planting 33 trees if you switched your energy to th- um, something like power shop and i can give you their phone number listeners if you've got a pen uh 1-800-462-668 i'm not really you know promoting them especially but they're the ones that that i know about and if you you want to put solar panels on your roof and and go the next step you can um contact um the the ARRCC website, have a look up there and you'll see their partners. They've got trusted partners like Moreland Energy Foundation. So I want to know, Philippa, how will we get a sense of collective power if each of us sort of makes that move towards cleaner energy? How will we get a sense of, well, my I've done my roof, how many other thousands of emissions can be saved if other people do their roof or just go to green power? How can we get that collective sense? Well, I think one of the biggest things that stops people from engaging with climate, many people that you talk to in the street feel it's all too big, it's all too difficult. What does what I do, how does that matter? Um, And yet if you accept sort of a basic premise that collectively we made the mess, then collectively we can probably turn it around. And I heard the comment made by your previous speaker, and I, I agree with that, that this can't just be personal change. Personal changes add up and can make a big difference because particularly the research that you were pointing to that that says that out of the top 10% of the emitters, if we just reduced ourselves to a reasonably comfortable life, not living in a hair shirt in a cave, but just looking at reducing the number of flights we do a year. In Australia, we hop on and off planes to Melbourne and Sydney and Brisbane as if we're jumping on a bus. It's just an accepted way of doing business. Mm -hmm. And that actually adds up to being a very significant contribution. And if collectively we looked at adding together just those simple choices that might be a meat-free, you know, one day a week or sustainable produced food, these... Small acts add up, but the other thing that they do is that they give that individual heart of being part of a movement. Mm. And, and Vivian, I think I've shared that I was, I haven't been to all of the climate talks, but, but I did go to Copenhagen, which was the first time I met the global climate community. Mm. And I was one of the few people I knew that came back completely inspired mm. by Copenhagen. Mm. And the reason for that is that we were let down by governments in Copenhagen. We were not let down by people. Mm. 
And I came back completely convinced that we don't have time to wait for government, communities need to lead the way, and that politicians often don't lead, but they love to jump in front of a moving crowd. So for the past nine years, I've been looking at this term I use, which is community solutions to climate change, and I've been influenced by that thought that we need to take action at the individual level, then at the community level, where as a community working together, we really can have influence. And at this point, I still can't say it without smiling, but the community in South Australia is now going to see a solar thermal plant built mm-hmm. in Port Augusta. Oh, and that was community-led change. Yeah. That's right, and I've recently done a program on South Australia and I was so impressed by everyone's level of consciousness. But Sarah, I've got to move on now. What about the thing about the plant-based diet? Now that always gets very hot, people get hot under the collar about that, but we're trying to lower a little bit people's carbon footprint. And Could you tell us about the um, greening of Ramadan, where an Islamic leader decided that they'd try to um, lower the carbon footprint of Ramadan? Well, if you look across the people that are sort of showcased on the Living a Change website. Um, there are two very key Muslims that have been involved in this. Um, one, uh, Safit Katavik, was the, involved in the Islamic Society of North America. And nobody heard of it because we were mistimed with the election in the US. But that is a very large uh, Islamic fund and they declared that they would divest in November last year, which is a major thing that none of us heard about, but that's quite significant. And Nana Fearman's work with, uh, uh, is to look at the greening of Ramadan on, in a whole range of ways, but including in her own personal life, her commitment for this living the change is to live a totally vegetarian life through Ramadan and beyond, and also look at what she can do in... Uh, changing her own behaviours and habits. And I think some of the other examples on the website uh, would be Thomas Insua from the Global Catholic Climate Movement, who in his own life is going to try and move away from damaging transport habits. And you might think that these individual changes aren't much, but when you think that the Global Catholic Climate Movement is now working around the world with hundreds of Catholic organisations and reaching out to millions of people, this can set up a positive feedback loop, uh, you know, a beneficial circle of individual responsibility that that then can grow into being quite a meaningful global contribution. And yes. that, I think, is the aim of this. Yeah, and like I saw the headline today in The Guardian, this is the headline, a sunny staycation, not a vacation, a sunny staycation <laughs> trend and bookings for foreign holidays are in decline. And I think that's great because for Australians to go to London, it's the equivalent of 42 trees being planted um, for yeah. one flight. So look, yeah. just, just to finish, what will happen in October so that people can see how collectively we are preventing millions of tonnes of CO2 going up into the greenhouse? Well, it'll begin in September, Vivian, because in September there is the Global Climate Action Summit in San Francisco in America, and there is a call for that to be um, combined with People's Climate Marches around the world, just as we had before the Paris Climate Talks, of civil society showing their, their will for change. That moment will be the first public pledges by senior faith leaders and communities about what they're pledging under this program. 
And then in October, there's going to be a week of Living the Change, which is the 7th to the 14th of October. And we're hoping through ARC, Australian Religious Response to Climate Change, to be hosting five or more um, celebrations of what we've managed to put together across faith and communities, uh, a range of commitments under Living the Change. And so we'll be celebrating that at various events in October. Okay, fantastic. And all of these will be bundled up together and taken as a global um, contribution mm. to the next Climate Talks in December in Poland with the uh, bit at the bottom that says, this is our contribution. Countries, please increase your ambition. Yeah, fantastic. Planet. All right, we'll come back to you in October. Thank you very much, Philippa. That was Philippa Rowland from the Australian Religious Response to Climate Change and talking about, you can look this up, it'll be linked to our podcast listeners, the uh, campaign is called Living the Change. And now we're going straight through to Rabbi Jonathan Kieran Black. He's also a member of um, ARRCC and he's an engineer as well as an artist who's spoken to us before. And he's here very briefly to tell us about a film he's showing in Canberra called Stop Adani. It's on the 14th of July and if you're in Canberra, it's at the Jewish Community Centre, 31 National Circuit Forest. So welcome, Rabbi Kieran Black. Are you there? I'm here, yes. Hi, Vivian. Thank you for taking this call. Um, what will you tell the audience in Canberra? Um, first of all, sorry about my quirky voice. Um, secondly, the film is actually called The Mighty Force, and it's a new Stop Adani short film, half an hour. And um, I'll be introducing that and showing it, um, and obviously taking questions afterwards. But I will be starting with a, pre, uh, a brief overview of um, the Jewish Ecological Coalition, since we'll be meeting in the synagogue, and also of ARC, the Australian Religious Response to Climate Change, and uh, how people can join up and get involved. And I will, of course, also be talking, as Philippa was, about living the change, because that's uh, something people can practically do to get involved. Do you, do you know many Jewish people who are really quite enthusiastic about this? Oh, look, I do in Melbourne. We've got um, the Jewish Ecological Coalition was established in 2003 and we've been going strong ever since. Um, so certainly we've got a good group of people who are very committed, but um, it would be good if it was bigger. And um, we've uh, had the opportunity to go to Canberra. In fact, I've also been asked to go to Canberra, to, to um, Brisbane later in the year to, to show the film and talk about it to the Jewish community there. So I'm hopeful that um, the message is getting through that we really have to take responsibility and act. Judaism um, has a very clear uh, imperative that we, we call it tikkun olam, healing the world, that um, we don't just sit back and rely on God to do it. We have to take responsibility ourselves and... It's such a huge task, as you're well aware, that we, you know, believe in a partnership between humans and God. If we do what we can, hopefully um, our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren will, will live to, uh, to say, thank goodness we did act. Well, yes, it's a question of survival now, as um, the, our first speaker spoke about, you know, the, really the tipping points we're coming to. And I wonder what living the change means to you, you know, since you've been involved in this for quite a long time. Has it changed yes. your life? 
Well, my life is changing, you know, bit by bit, um, and living the change is a good opportunity to spread that word more widely, but it did make me, I, I have my, my pet, parents are aging in London and so I need to go see them and uh, as Philip said it's you know one of the most um, emission intensive journeys you can take to go around the world and back um, I was interested there was a difference in what the Thai airline ticket said there was 1.5 kilos 1.5 tons of emissions but I actually did some research and offset my emissions because of living the change mm. and um, it cost me over $100 to do so but I did it through uh, Greenfleet here in Australia which is a reputable organization and um, and they reckon it's more like 9.5 tons so there's a big discrepancy in that figure of how much emissions is caused but um, it's certainly there's no question it's very significant and we have to avoid it as far as possible but if we can't avoid it at least offset that's right um i think the arc... i'm also eating less meat yeah. it's one of our programs and uh, and i'm you know meat production is really very high um on the list of emissions and um i also drive an electric car i've got a mitsubishi which only has 30 kilometers range I try very hard not to use petrol in it, just to plug into my renewable mm. electricity supply. So, you um, think personal change is working? You think if if you could, if you as a faith leader could put that on a little video, and then people say, "Oh, well, he's our leader. We'll we'll follow that." Do you think the norm will change? That it suddenly becomes normal, like not smoking is now normal. Is that how it works? I think so. I hope so. And, and I am actually on the video already. Um, it was filmed a few weeks ago. So, um, But as well as the things you can do individually in terms of your own life, um, you can also take action. And we've got to work at this level. You know, I was um, demonstrating outside um, Josh Frydenberg's office with a group of ARC people just uh, last Thursday, actually. And... Um, and also, you know, demonstrate and write to the politicians. I dropped in afterwards and told them to please ask Josh to uh, make sure that um, there's a proper environmental assessment on Adani's new plans to bring water into their mine site in the Galilee Basin because um, we're concerned that it's going to avoid that proper assessment process, the environmental assessment process. And they know me and they... You know, they, they understand that it's important. I told them we're not going to go away. It's really important. We have a responsibility to the future. And so living the change not only means changing what you're doing in your own practices, but also taking more of a proactive stance in terms of demonstrating and writing to politicians and speaking to them and doing anything we can because we can't afford not to. It's, we can't sit back and just see it unfold. No, thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, that was Rabbi Karen Black speaking to us about um, the film showing called Stop Adani. Thank you very much. Now we're going down to Morwell. And we've got Kurt on the phone. Kurt is the other part of our team, but he's out and about today, and he's in Morwell. Um, are you there, Kurt? Oh, well, I'm, he's, he's just probably being transmitted to me here in the studio. Um, I'll, uh, I'll tell you where I am right now. So I'm, okay. I'm, at, I'm at the edge of um, your lawn. Uh, it's, it's an old mine. Uh, it was one of it was a town that was built in 1920 by Sir John Monash um, to help to, to, for a place for the the miners uh, and the the power station workers to 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 
mine the brown coal. Um, and they found it was one of the nicest towns. It was one of the best planned towns in all of um, in all of Victoria, based on the Garden Town project, which is uh, in. in they found coal under it, uh, and they found brown coal under it, and they tore up the whole town. Um, so it's just, uh, an indication how interesting, historically interesting, this community is, and how much of a massive impact, uh, sometimes constructive but sometimes destructive, uh, that brown coal has had here. Well, Kurt, you're chasing a story down at Morwell, and I know we're going to have that at the end of July. Um, can you give the listeners a, an idea of what new radio sounds we'll be hearing, you know, in your program? Yes. Um, so today I spoke to uh, Chris Barfoot, who is an engineer that works for the uh, Community Power Hub down here. Uh, Victoria has three Community Power Hubs. There's one in Bendigo, one in Ballarat, and one here in the Latrobe Valley. Um, they're involved. I was I was lucky enough to sit in um, the board meeting for um, the Community Power Hub and uh, uh, Gippsland Climate Change Network, G, uh, GCCN, uh, and they were talking about some of the really exciting projects because you wouldn't, this area, I mean, it was built on coal. You wouldn't expect them to uh, adapt to renewables so easy, but they were, they were discussing these bulk buying hot water systems where they said they, they had 60 or 70 peop, uh, hot water systems that were built for the area. And then there's really, there's a solar farm, there's a microgrid. That uh, is being pilot testing, which, put, tested, which where you get a small um, collection of, of of houses, residences, and businesses, and you get them to um, produce uh, net electricity. Um, so they're producing their own. And then this other thing that I heard about today, which is solar footpaths, where you get the footpaths to generate. So I I spoke to uh, Chris Barfoot, and I, I learned a lot about the different projects that they that they thinking about working on or working on at the moment. And then I headed down to, um, to, to Newborough, which is right next to Morwell, and I spoke to, to Wendy Farmer. And Wendy Farmer is a very interesting character. She's very prominent here in the, in, um, the Latrobe Valley, um, especially in the wake of the 2014 fire. Um, so you have this community here. It's built on coal. It's used to... Um, working in, it's used to being given things by the government and then suddenly there's this huge fire which didn't get nearly as much coverage as it should have in the media and then they realise they have to start thinking for themselves. So I'm really down here, um, in the lead up to the, to the, the election later this year to see what kind of a political force coal versus renewable is going to have to see this community really begin to fend for itself and be, how it's been transformed into a, a potent political force. Yeah, well, that film called Our Power by Peter Yukono um, is just being launched soon and uh, your review was really excellent about it, film review, and it's going to be linked to this podcast. But tell us what you thought about the film. It started with a picture of the mine find. I have never seen a picture so incredible of a great big face of coal all on fire and they had to excavate it to couldn't put it out with water and I, I had lived through that period but I never saw a photo like that um, in the film so tell us why you found the film so thrilling in the Q&A afterwards well I just think as an 
it, it all also, yeah, it has those really, really compelling visuals. But I think what is so interesting about this area is that it has in it every major current that's happening in the developed world today. Every, every, you have, these old industrialized area, the Latrobe Valley that is built, uh, still operating these relic of power stations that are slowly being phased out. But then you have this really powerful grassroots uh, community uh, that's growing up and is really quite passionate about uh, it, thinking about renewables because everyone here talks, talks electronic power and electricity and you think that their minds are fixed on coal, but a lot of them are just so willing to bring up renewables. But it's also got the big questions about the, the, what, what do we do with these um, really well-trained, very technical industrial workers that after, after these power stations and mines are closed, I mean, it's a big, it's a big problem because you can't, if someone's a 55-year-old uh, power station operator, they're not, you can't retrain them to become a software engineer, which is why I'm also for the show on the 30th of July, I'm going to be talking to um, Mark Richards as well, the Labor candidate for that area, mm-hmm. and um, he will, he, he, I'm, I'm sure Labor going into this election in, in November um, will have some ideas about retraining and some real exciting prospects. Yeah, well, I think these people are real heroes and pioneers for the rest of us, and we need to know their story because when I saw the film, I thought, golly, they've been really gutted. They were gutted when the mine was privatised and we saw on the film how they ripped out all, the private company ripped out all the um, piping, you know, for yep. scrap metal and... And, the, and so when the fire happened, there was no, not enough water, uh, you know, that they could put the fire out. And that was like a criminal sort of thing. So these people who are, who are dealing with this, dealing with this history, they've been sort of privatized, lost their jobs, made depressed, and now they're coming up. I think th- they are exploring solutions that, that are very difficult. And, and so that's, I, I'm really looking forward to what you discuss with them because, yep. um, you know, it's new thinking. It's new. <laughs> yeah, and it's. A, I think it's also a really, really important message to be told in these metro areas like Melbourne, where you have these very, very strong communities. Um, and I was always of the mindset before I came and travelled here. I was always of the mindset: look, jobs, jobs are just not that important. The, the absolute most important thing is cutting down on carbon and I still think that cutting down on carbon is by, is the most important thing but I also think that there's you can't come into it just slashing jobs it has to be managed correctly otherwise there'll be a very very potent political backlash yeah fantastic thank you very much Kurt so that no was that was Kurt Johnson speaking to us from all this feels like we're on TV with you you're reporting in from out there so thank you very much and, and um, Kurt will be with us next week but also on the 30th of July we'll hear that more well program so thank you very much listeners for um, staying with us tonight it was the program was called pro bono and we heard um philippa roland sarah brennan and rabbi karen black talking about living the change and influencing change you know through philanthropy and personal action and then we've just heard a heads up about the next 
uh, program uh, at the end of the month from Kurt, which is all about um, the mobile uh, area and the transition to a safe climate through a just transition for the workers. Um, I'd like to tell you, listeners, there's a, a film coming up this Saturday, 11.30 at South Bank, and it's called A Crude Injustice, and it's a bit similar to that one of Our Power because it interviews the people. I haven't seen the film, but we did interview the filmmaker some time back, and it's about that Montaro oil spill up in the northern parts of Australia, off the coast of northern Australia, and the crude oil went across to West Timor, and the... Uh, um, seaweed farmers there were ruined and so she made this film Jane Hammond and we interviewed her a few months back and now the film's available so this Saturday 11.30 at South Bank I hope to see you there I'll be certainly there it's at the Backlist Cinema 65 Hague Street South Bank and if you missed that just look up Documentary Film Festival this Saturday um, the mm, what could the date be Mm. The thirteenth or something like yeah, that. Yeah, sounds it's about come right. Saturday after today, um, sixty-five Hague Street, South Bank. So just before we go, listeners, the fourteenth. The fourteenth. Oh, thank you. Oh, yes, the fourteenth of July, the Bastille Day. So Babette, we think of Babette there. I'd like to thank. Now we've had quite a lot more donations, and I'd like to thank the donors we got halfway down the list. Um, and these are the ones that I didn't read, and I'd really just like to thank very, very much these people: Robin Laurie, Martin Leonard, Christoph Lukash, Daryl Maunder, John Mirori, Adrian Morfitt, Lee Norton, Mick Nolan, Jim Oates. Catherine Park, Bernard Peasley, um, Bernard Peasley gave two donations, Amaril Pelesh, Vanessa Petrie, who's the CEO of, of Beyond Zero Emissions, uh, Frank Plata, CJ and KD Prell. I think they are farmers up there who've got a wind turbine on their farm. We interviewed Charlie some time back. Um, Rev Bikes, we interviewed her too, Reve- um, uh, Rebecca. Um, Leonie Rooney, Fleur Rubens. Jane Rudman used to be the panel for this show. Thank you to Jane. Uh, Damien Sabatini, Lizette Salmon, Greg Siegel, Madeline Searle, Susan Sharp, Georgina Stubbs, Miwa Tomonaga, who's an enormous part of this team. She's in the uh, mainly instrumental in the Friday uh, radio show, which you can hear 8.30 Fridays, but Miwa's part of that team. Trevor Townsend, Matt Villani, Kay Wenigal, also on the Friday team, Elizabeth Wilson, Coral Winter, and Elka Zimmerman, who's a BZE person. And there was a, one I missed out last week, Tom Evans, who gave a very generous donation. Also Senator Jan- Janet Rice, and I think there are a few more, Vicky uh, Sharp and Judy Ebner. So thank you so much to all of those people. A lot of them are our friends, a lot of them are BZE team members, all part of BZE but a lot of them are just listeners and people who've contributed to the show. So thank you so much. And thank you to Andy oh, and Roger. No thank you. <laughs> so good Beyond night, Zero Emissions is a not-for-profit <laughs> research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero emissions economy. As climate change action becomes an emergency, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, 
zero emissions exports and industry, zero emissions transport, zero emissions buildings, and zero emissions land use. Podcasts of our shows contain a who's who of community action and climate solutions.